And Father, that is our boast. Our boast is not in ourselves. Our boast is not in what we possess. Our boasting is not in our intellect, our beauty. But Father, in this place, at this time, in this moment, our boast is you. For you are the one who is the source behind all that we have and all that we are. And you are the one who has provided for us the greatest gift, meeting our greatest need. And that is providing us your son, Jesus, who lived for us, died for us, rose for us, intercedes for us, and is one day coming back for us. So Father, thank you for all that you have given us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for redeeming us and reconciling us. Thank you for giving us hope, and a future. And for these reasons, Lord, we boast, not in ourselves, but in Christ. And Lord, as we come to this new series where we're gonna learn about what it means to be united with Christ, we pray that you would illumine our minds. We pray that you would conform us more and more to the image of Jesus. God, we ask that you would be pleased by the Holy Spirit to use your word to shape us and fashion us into the men and women that you desire for us to be. Father, in order for us to do that, we have to gather. And we must prayerfully consider what it is you have revealed about yourself. And we have to trust and we have to obey. And so God, would you grant in abundance the grace and energy and the empowerment we need to do these very things. May your word come alive to us. God, may it sweep in our souls a, a wind of freshness. Would you awaken us? Would you inflame a passion for who you are? Would you kindle deep and abiding affections? God, would you help us to apprehend and comprehend your love for us? So Father, we ask for big things during these next six weeks, things only which you can do. And so it's right and good for us to ask you for them. So Father, work in us, we pray. Work through us, we pray. For we pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. 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 Good morning, church. It's good to see you all. Let me get myself settled. As I prayed, we're starting a new series today, and it's entitled, In Him. And I don't know if you can see graphically, it's artistically portrayed in this title, where we find our greatest identity and we find what it means to live a life that is pleasing to God, that it does good for the glory of God. We find it in Christ. And so for the next six weeks, we're going to spend time together uh, working through this series where myself and a couple other pastors are going to be preaching on this important doctrine of union with Christ, which has been by many people neglected, I think. Uh, for some people, it just gets ignored. And for others, I think just out of a, a, a truly a humble and honest ignorance, we just don't understand it. But it is this doctrine of union with Christ is the source of so much joy, so much understanding of what it is God desires of us and for us, that it's important for us as a church to work through union with Christ, but to do so a little bit on the slower side. I know it's going to seem long, six weeks, and I'm going to preach a lot and all this kind of stuff, but, but it really is just slowing down and, and trying to soak in the things that the Lord has for us through his word. We're going to be looking in Ephesians chapter 1, verse, verses 3 through 14. Each and every person who will be preaching during this series will be using these verses to uh, pull out of these verses something that we can look at, which is a different perspective on this doctrine of union with Christ. Each and every week, the sermon titles will start with a P, uh, which is pretty funny um, and was hard to do. Uh, we had to use a thesaurus, um, but we succeeded, and so we're happy about that. So today is going to be providence, the providence of our union with Christ. The word providence means origin or beginning or source. And so we ask the question, where did our union with Christ come from? 
The second week, we'll talk about what union with Christ produces in us, where we'll talk about holiness and godliness and, and what the work of the Spirit does in us in producing good fruits. Then third week, we'll talk about the purpose of our union with Christ, how it is aimed towards the glorification and the praise of God, how it is not about our own boasting. It's not about us and putting our best self forward. It's about God and all of his glory. The fourth week, we'll talk about the payment of our union with Christ. That is to say, how is it that we are able to be united with Christ? What did it cost God to do so? And then we'll talk about the promise of God, of how he promises us things which are life-giving. And we'll break those things out and see how the promises of God in the union with Christ provide us with such security and assurance, it'll blow your mind. And then lastly, what is our prize when it comes to the union with Christ? And there we'll see the sweet fellowship of being reunited with God. It's going to be really really good these next six weeks um i've already begun well you don't realize it but i've already begun teaching you a little bit about union with christ through the sermon preached last week for our resurrection sunday i smuggled it in there and you were unawares (laughs) but i did it and i'm going to point it out this morning where i did it and how i did it because i want you to see that there are so many blessings and so much good that will come from just understanding union with Christ. It literally, and I don't mean that as the kids say it, where they don't mean literally, they mean like figuratively, but like literally, it, it can change your life. And that's why we're gonna study this together. Um, if you are back last week, you visited and you're like, you know what, I'll come back. You're brave, thank you. And uh, I do wanna say welcome. My name is Phil, I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to say one quick announcement before we jump into Ephesians chapter 1, is we have uh, today at 2 o'clock, we have our business meeting, which again, everyone is welcome to come, but members are expected to be there. Uh, we're going to welcome in 17 new members. Uh, we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, just kind of the business of the church, but we'll give an update too on the thing we've been working on, which is renovating uh, the plaza outside and all that kind of stuff. So I encourage you to come hear some, some good things that the Lord is doing. Let me show you then uh, that I'm not lying, that in fact I smuggled this in last week's sermon, but you were dressed in your pastels and you may not have noticed. (laughs) I know I was. If you remember this text, this is the one that I preached on. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sore? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor thing present, things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You may not have seen it, but what I'm going to do is highlight for you where you need to see it, where the doctrine of union with Christ is present. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And all these things? No, no, no. And all these things were more than conquerors through him who loves us. And he's sure that all these things, they are not able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, the reason why I highlight these Three specific things is because they show you that the abiding, inseparable love of God that he offers you because of the resurrection of Jesus is only and always yours through your union with Christ. Which means if you don't, if you don't understand, comprehend, or grasp your union with Christ, it will shrink minimize your grasp and understanding of the deep and profound love of God. And so I want to show you that today of how these things work together. I remember being a kid and um, being invited to a friend of mine's house named Daryl. 
lived in the neighborhood. We used to play video games together, ride bikes together. One thing I loved about Daryl was that on some Saturday nights, he, he and his family would gather together for a delicious meal. And I was the neighborhood scrounge in this way. And so I would try to position myself in such a way that it would be weird for them not to invite me to dinner. <laughs> and so, I, you know, I'd be strategic about it. I didn't always get invited. Some days they're like, nah, you got to go home. Like, All right. But what I loved about the dinners at Daryl's house was his dad is an African-American man from the South and his mom's Filipino. So whenever we were at Daryl's house, and it was specifically on these Saturday nights, we would have this amazing, eclectic, and kind of a, it doesn't go together for you foodies, kind of dinner, where there would be lumpia, pancit, rice, cornbread, collard greens, grits, and because Daryl's dad met Daryl's mom while he was in the military station in the Philippines, um, there was hilarious conversations and stuff that would happen. But he was also a veteran, which meant he would go to Travis Air Force Base and whatever meats that the, commons, the, the, the commissary had on sale, he would buy, and that would be the meat portion of our meal. Sometimes it was crab, sometimes it was ribs, sometimes it was chicken. But you can imagine all these different dishes, which some, they just don't, don't go together, but they do. Oh, they do. <laughs> just big bite of ribs and lumpia. It's good, it's good. And so I would love these dinners, and we would sit around, and we would hear hilarious stories because Daryl's dad, Verda, is a big, large black man, and his mom was a very tiny Filipino lady. And so we would hear stories about him coming into her home in the Philippines and all the family members like, oh my goodness. And it was just hilarious stories. And she would tell stories about how goofy he was. And he would tell stories about fighting uh, in Vietnam and just all this stuff. And the whole time these stories are being shared, we're just filling our mouth with all kinds of good stuff, laughing. I mean, to the point where you have to unbuckle your top button and just kind of sit there. But in order for me to eat and join in on this meal, for me to be welcomed into this family, it meant that I also had to participate in the family duties, which meant I had to do some dishes and I had to clean up the table and all that kind of stuff. That was just the price and I was willing to pay it. It was good. But what that experience taught me, firstly, is that you can't just invite yourself into a family meal. A family has to invite you. Second thing it taught me is when you're invited to a family meal, you're not just there as a stranger. You're part of that family. You're going to share food. You're going to share stories. You're going to share laughter. You're going to share tears. And then you have to share the responsibility of cleaning up after. And in a small way, that really prepared me because I didn't grow up in a Christian home or anything. That prepared me for what it would be like to live in, a, in relationship with other brothers and sisters in a thing called the church. What does it mean to be a part of a second family? And it taught me a lot about union with Christ of how God invites us not just to intellectually give assent or approval of certain, you know, doctrines, but it's an invitation to be welcomed into the very presence and relationship and family of God. And in so doing, receiving and experiencing all the blessings and all the joys of what that welcome entails. It was so helpful to learn that, and it helps me as I understand the doctrine of union with Christ. In a nutshell, union with Christ is everything which is true of Jesus is also true of you. For instance, when God the Father spoke at God the Son's baptism and said, behold, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased, if you are united with Christ, it doesn't mean that you're like attached to him. It means you're in him. And therefore, the words of God, of his pleasure and delight of his son is also true of you. So that God can look at you in the face and says, oh, with you, I am well pleased. But it's not because of you. It's because of his son that God's affections are so for you. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to give you an explanation of the doctrine of union with Christ. I'm not going to give you a definition in the sense of just like two sentences, here's what it is. But I want to show you from the Bible how the Bible unpacks this concept 
of union with Christ. We'll look at it grammatically. I know. I told my daughter this morning, uh, I was like, yeah, I'm going to teach some grammar today. And she's like, really? (laughs) No, it'll be good. Trust me. It'll be good. We'll look at it grammatically where we'll look at prepositions and we'll look at indicatives and imperatives. And then I'm going to show you union with Christ metaphorically. It's this picture that Jesus gives of how best to understand union with Christ. And then lastly, we're going to look at it theologically. So I'm going to use the Bible and let the Bible teach us this thing. And then I want to try to convince you of its importance. This is not a doctrine to neglect. This is not a time to tune out. And you're not like, ah, oh, now we know we don't have to go to church for the next five weeks. Lame. No, no, no. This is life-giving, life-changing, and I hope to show you that. And then thirdly, I'm going to ask and answer that question, which is where does this union with Christ come from? What is its origin? What is its provenance? So let's start grammatically. I had an English professor who told me that prepositions matter. And she said, the best way to know what a preposition is, is imagine yourself flying in an airplane and you see out of your window a cloud. What are all the things you and the airplane can do in reference to that cloud? And then she made us write it all down. And I'm like, this is stupid. But then I realized, oh, this is brilliant. Here's what I wrote down. And the reason I know I wrote it down is because I wrote it down again, like on Thursday. So here's what you could do in an airplane in reference to a cloud. You can fly by a cloud, you can fly through the cloud, you can fly next to the cloud, above it or below it, you could fly with it, where you look out the window, you're like, hi cloud. You can fly between clouds, you could fly in a cloud, that's one of my favorites. You can fly behind it, I see it up there. You can fly around it, you can fly to it, you can fly from it, You can fly at it, and you can fly, as it seems, on it. And there's probably other ones, but that's what I wrote down. And so when you think about these prepositions, you realized, oh, these prepositions matter because they're helping us understand positionally myself in reference to something outside of myself, namely Jesus. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, What I'm going to do is I'm going to circle all the prepositions that refer to union with Christ. And you'll see it's everywhere. And it's not just in Ephesians 1. It's it's all throughout the New Testament. Here's what Paul writes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, And things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's a big long phrase, but you see. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Did you see it? If you're counting, that's at least 10, potentially 12, and if you're a real stickler, 13 or 14. 
but let's not argue about that. Let me just say, if you take the Romans passage that we had just talked about, and you take this Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, then union with Christ touches on God's love for you, God's protection of you, God's commitment to you. It touches things like spiritual blessings, election, holiness, spiritual adoption, redemption, forgiveness, the wisdom of God, our inheritance in heaven, hope, the indwelling Holy Spirit, and the glorification and praise of God. That's kind of a lot of stuff. And if you think about it, there's really no essential thing that we must know in order to be saved and grow in Christ that is apart from union with Christ. Forgiveness, redemption, Holy Spirit, obedience, killing sin, heaven, all these things are tied to an understanding of your union with Christ. So that is the prepositions. Now let me show you the imperative, indicative relationship. An indicative is something that indicates something. It's something that's true. It's something you, you might say, like, what does that indicate? What is true about that? And then you have this other thing called imperatives. Imperatives are like commands. That's what you should do. So what you have grammatically is this relationship between what is true, there is something which necessarily follows that. And so we see this relationship actually in the Bible in reference to union with Christ, where Paul says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now what Paul is doing is helping us see that if you are in Christ, then there are commands that he makes of you, which is like consider and also what he does is he says, let not sin therefore. And the therefore is there to indicate that there is something he wants you to do. He wants you to not let sin reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments of righteousness. And if you think about it, being in Christ and being one who has been brought from death to life, that is indicative. This is just true. Your union with Christ means you are dead to sin and alive to Jesus. And because that's true, there are necessary imperatives. There are things you must get about doing. Namely, you need to kill sin and you need to live righteously. Now, this is important because in our culture today, by and large, we understand our identity based on our performances. What I mean is if I ask you the question, who are you? You, almost without thinking, will answer the question based on some kind of performance you have done. A thought, an action, an accomplishment. You will say, I am a father, I am a mother, I am a graduate, I am a lawyer, I am this, I am that. No, you're not. You do those things, but that's not what you are. In our culture, doing precedes being. But in Christianity, being precedes doing. You can't do what you know you ought to do unless you know first who you are. Because what you do is not the determiner of what you are. So you don't do good works in order to be saved. But because God has saved you by his grace and mercy, you then go and do good works. If you don't get the indicative imperative combination in the right order, you will end up being legalistic and a works-based salvation person, and that is anti-gospel. Why waste time on grammar, you may be asking? Because words matter. They bear eternal weight. 
And since God has revealed, revealed himself through words, I think it is important for us to make sure we're using words and understanding words properly. Here's what Michael Barrett, he's a, a pastor. He wrote a book. He's a pastor and professor. He wrote a book called Complete in Him. He writes, right thinking about the gospel produces right living in the gospel. Not wrong or careless living as many people think. Fixing our minds on the amazing truth that we are united to Christ will profoundly impact the way we live. It will give us boldness and motivation for life and also confidence when we face death. Now let's look at union with Christ, not from a grammatical uh, position, but from a metaphoric one. And we find it best in John 15 where Jesus is talking about him being the true vine and we being the branches. Here's what Jesus says. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This image here is a reference to saving relationship with Jesus. If Jesus abides in you and you abide in him, it means that you are safe from your sins and it means that you have a place in heaven. And what Jesus is saying is, if you look in the natural world, you can't just rip a branch like, a, like an orange, off an orange tree and you can't just shove the branch into the ground and expect more oranges to show up. It has to be tied to the root system that is bringing in from the soil, moisture and nutrients. Similarly, Jesus is saying, look, unless you are tied to me, unless you are united with me, you cannot bear fruit. In other words, you can't bear good fruit, good works. And he reminds us that he is the vine. He is the one that gives the nutrients that enables fruitfulness or life. And he says, whoever abides in me, Whoever's united with me and I in him, that person bears much fruit. And I love this because he says, apart from me, you can do nothing, which is so counterintuitive in our culture today. Oftentimes when people talk about Jesus, they're like, I know you're doing good in business. You're doing good with your family. You got a great marriage and all this kind of stuff. But just think about it. If you had Jesus in your life, it would be better. And it gives this idea that you're already doing some good, but just add Jesus to your life, it just kind of makes it sweeter, you know? Like, I don't like tea, it's bitter, but just add a little sugar and it'll be all right. But that's not how Jesus talks. Jesus said, no, 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 actually, I don't make your life better. Actually, without me, you have no life at all. And the only way for you to have life is if you're in me or united with me. You have me, you have life, you're not in me, and I'm not in you, there's no life at all. And that's the relationship between the root and the fruit. Where Jesus teaches that he is the true vine, God the Father is the vine dresser, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes to make it more fruitful. In other words, Jesus is the source of fruitfulness. God the Father is the one ensuring that there will be fruitfulness. This is not like, oh, maybe we'll be fruitful. No. Jesus is the life-giving vine. God the Father is the gardener who ensures that there will absolutely be fruit. Just as we learned in the book of Hosea. Now, regarding this fruit... Jesus says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And then look at the rest of the sentence. And so prove to be my disciples. How do you know whether or not you are a follower of Jesus? The answer is, you bear the inevitable fruit of being connected to the vine. That's how. I didn't make that up. <laughs> Jesus said it. And he says, as the Father has loved me, oh, watch this, verse 9. The Father loves the Son, my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. As the Father has loved the Son, so, Jesus says, I have loved you. 
In other words, God the Father's love is channeled to you through Jesus. By being connected to Jesus, you experience the Father's deep and profound love and in no other way. And if you keep my commandments, Jesus continues on, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. It is God the Father's desire for all of us who are united to Christ by faith to bear much fruit. And God guarantees that there will be fruitfulness because he is the vine dresser, a gardener that ensures it. And the fruitfulness that God guarantees will come is how you maintain or continue to experience the overwhelming love of God. And when you experience this overwhelming love of God, it will well up and result in the fullness of joy. Did you see it? I know I'm asking you to think, and I know it's church and many of you don't want to. But this is important. Let me say it in good old-fashioned one-sentence English. It is love that unites us with Christ and it is the fruit of obedience that gives evidence of our union with Christ and it's union with Christ that inevitably produces the fullness of joy. In other words, for you to experience the fullness of joy, you have to bear the fruit of obedience. And in so doing, you experience the weightiness of God's love. And that's exactly opposite to what many of you think. God's a killjoy. He just tells me what to do all the time. My greatest joy is in not being told what to do. Actually, what God is saying is, no, 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 I made you and I know exactly how you tick and how you work and how you're supposed to work. And if you just do what I say, then you will experience the fullness of your joy. Oh, yeah. Theologically, let me explain it this way, union with Christ. It comes from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. I have to read this fairly quickly. And so I apologize if I speed through this. Here's what Paul says theologically about union with Christ. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's union with Christ. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then he summarizes it. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, union with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And here's a summary. Union with Christ in this passage simply means Everything which is true of Christ is also true of you. If Jesus died to sin and you're united with Christ through faith, then you died to sin. Stop living in it. And if you've been united with Christ by faith, then you have been resurrected to a new life to walk in newness of life. So act like it. Here's how Jared Wilson in his book, Gospel Deeps, summarizes it. This is a book that the elders and I worked through. I highly encourage all of you, any of you, if you want to plumb the depths of the gospel, this is a book that you should read. Here's what he writes. 
We are so united with Christ that everything which is true of Christ is also true of us. We are united with Christ, therefore his sacrificial death is our sacrificial death. We are united with Christ, therefore his burial is our burial. We are united with Christ, therefore his resurrection is our resurrection. We are united with Christ, therefore we will be reunited with him in the future resurrection. We are united with Christ, therefore his crucifixion is our crucifixion. We are united with Christ, therefore his life is our life. We are united with Christ, therefore death no longer has dominion over us, just as it has no dominion over him. We are united with Christ, therefore we are alive to God. He says the implications of this are mind-blowing. Christ's perfect obedience becomes our perfect obedience and Christ's sinlessness becomes our sinlessness. His death, our death, his resurrection, our resurrection, his exaltation, our exaltation, his riches, our riches. How can anyone neglect to attend to their union with Christ? It's all important, all encompassing. And whatever is true of Christ is also true of you. Michael Barrett, who I've already quoted, I'm going to finish his quote. He says this, As we learn to take advantage of everything that we are and have in Christ, we will experience all the benefits of what it means to be complete in him. One of the greatest advantages that union with Christ provides is the profound sense of assurance and security flowing from the knowledge that God deals with us only and always in terms of Christ. Therefore, what we do as believers is pleasing and acceptable to God because we, all, we are always seen together with him. For he is God's beloved son. And because of our union with Christ, so are we. This is amazing. That means God's love will always outpace and outperform all of your failures, not because God just like, eh, and he winks at your sin. It's because Jesus has perfectly and unfaultingly obeyed God in every imaginable way, and that righteousness of Jesus is now yours by faith in him. So that you're so united to Christ, when God the Father sees God the Son perfect and sinless, He sees you alongside of Jesus, perfect and sinless. That's unbelievable. And that's what makes union with Christ so significant. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 through 10. And I want to show, I want to try to convince you that we should not neglect our union with Christ. And we should unpack it and deepen our understanding of it. And here's one reason why. Union with Christ is the sum of God's saving work in the gospel. It summarizes everything that God has done for us, to us, in the gospel. We read this in verse 7. In Christ, union with Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. If you notice, this verse says, our union with Christ means redemption. It means forgiveness. It means God's grace. It means wisdom. It means insight. It means understanding the purpose of God. It means when God is reconciling all things to himself, you're part of that. All of that is encompassed in union with Christ. So that union with Christ is the sum total of God's saving work in the gospel. Two quick verses to show you. For our sake, brothers and sisters, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. In other words, Jesus became a sin atoning sacrifice for us. Why? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Which means outside of Jesus, no redemption, no salvation, no righteousness, no reconciliation, no forgiveness, no wisdom, no insight, no understanding. You don't get any of it outside of Christ. It's only in Christ that these things come to you. 
And one of the verses that many people, even unbelievers, cherish is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I'm still baffled by some who don't believe in Jesus who still reference this. God, you know, there's no condemnation. God casts out fear. Yeah, he does, but it's only for those who are in Christ. If you're outside of Christ, no, no, no. There's all kinds of condemnation and fear. All kinds of hell coming your way. It's only for those who are in Christ. Let me show you one other thing. It comes from Colossians chapter 3. And it's a connection between the theology of union with Christ with its practice. The reason why I have to bring this up is uh, over the years, I've developed a reputation. Uh, I've met people in supermarkets and I met people at baseball fields who are like, oh, you're the pastor at Golden Hills. I've heard about you. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> what have you heard? And it's usually your sermons are really long and boring and, and things like that. I'm not joking either. And they're un, unusually deep is what I keep hearing. And um, so I know you may be thinking this is deep. You're making me think a lot. This is just Phil going off in his egg-headed theology nonsense. But let me, let me show you why this matters profoundly for practicality in the way in which you live your life. Let me show you, and not from my words, let me show you from the Apostle Paul. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, in other words, you've been united, with, united, united to Christ by faith, and so his resurrection is now your resurrection, if that's true of you, indicatively, then he goes on to this imperative, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Why? Because or for you have died with Christ and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In other words, what Paul's saying is, if it's true that you're in Christ, then you need to get your mind right. Because too many people who claim to be in Christ have their minds fixated on the things of the world. And Paul's saying, you guys got it backwards. You're just wrong. What's wrong with you? If you've been united with Christ, then get your mind on Christ. And let your mind scale the heights of the heavens because Christ is your life. And therefore, your mind should be saturated by the things of Christ at all times and always. If, if you are actually in him. Now, what he's going to do, if, you, if you've already opened up your Bibles, I don't know if you have, but you're in the book of Ephesians. And if you go just two books over to Colossians 3, the next two paragraphs are going to start with the two English words, put off and put off on and this shows the practicality and the application of the theology we've been talking about and its importance union with Christ if your mind is right your mind is fixated on the things of God because you know that you're united with Christ then put to death therefore these earthly things that are in your life if you're united with Christ, then you better put to death all of your pornography. You better put to death all the sexual morality. You better put to death all this impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You need to put away all this nonsense of anger and malice and slander and obscene talk. You better put away all this lying. Verse 11, you better put away all that racism. And you better put away all of your prejudices that prefer some people over others because Christ is all and in all. There's no room for those who are in Christ to harbor these kinds of earthly sinful things. That's practical. Is it not? Well, then what do we do? Well, you bear fruit. Remember, if you're in Christ and you're sucking life from Jesus in order to bear fruit for his glory and your joy, how do you do that? 
I'm glad you asked. Next paragraph. Put on then as God's chosen ones. And that, that chosen one will come back in a minute. Put on then. And he doesn't say be holy and be beloved. No, no, no. He says, no, no, no. Put on indicative you holy ones and you beloved ones. That's who you are. You're chosen in Christ. You are holy in Christ. You are loved in Christ. And because of that, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. Love one another. That's how you bear fruit. If you are united with Christ by faith, then you better be getting busy killing sin and getting busy producing fruit. And let the word of Christ dwell in you. If you are with Christ, then it makes no sense to not let the word of Christ dwell in you. It makes no sense. Jesus, I want you, but just back off with all that talk. I don't want that. No, no, no. Teaching and admonishing one another. It doesn't say, let the word of Christ dwell in the pastor who teaches and admonishes us. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in all of us so that we can teach and admonish one another. Too many folks are, too many folks are playing games with the fruit-bearing necessity of being in God's word and helping others to fall in love with it. Paul says, no, 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 if you're in Christ, that needs to be a feature of what you do. And then he says this, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is so practical, it touches everything. When you're swimming, when you got the backyard barbecue, when you're commuting, when you're at work, when you're watching Netflix, when you're taking a nap during a baseball game, when you're with your kids, mowing the grass, whatever you do, in word and deed, or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, your union with Christ touches every aspect of your life. There is no place in which your union with Christ does not shape and form you in some way. And if there are places that you are withholding from God, preventing God or refusing to allow God into that space, you now need to ask more and more questions about why you're doing that. Maybe you're not in Christ after all. And that's why we have the signage outside. That's why we have it on our website, this little phrase, all of Christ for all of life. I don't want to be shortchanged on Jesus one bit. I want the fullness of Christ. I want the fullness of joy. I want the fullness of the love of God channeling to me and through me, through Christ. I want it all. Don't hold back anything, God. Give it to me. But I want that to infuse and be seen in and shape all of my life so that God will get the glory and I will get the joy. The second reason why this is union with Christ is so important, hopefully I've already convinced you, but if not, maybe this will help. Union with Christ is a source of security and assurance for those who are in Christ. Here's what I mean. Many people will fool themselves and think that they are in Christ because they go to a small group or because they attend church or because they're just, you know, the brotherhood of man. We're all in Christ. Mm -mm. The Bible's very clear. There is indeed something that unites all of us and it's not brother and sisterhood, it's neighborhood. We're all made in the image of God and the chief image of God person is Adam of whom we share that identity. But if you are only in Adam, which means you remain outside of Christ, then 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says that you're dead. For in Adam all die. 
if all you are is an Adam, which means you don't have faith in Jesus, then you're going to die. Eternally, you're going to die. But those who are in Christ will be made alive. And so the question is, who represents you? Are you represented by Adam or are you represented by Christ? And the difference is life or death. Not everyone is in Christ, but everyone begins their life in Adam. And for those who are in Christ, this is what is amazing, is that you are secure and you are assured. First, let me ask the question, how do you get into Christ? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So that's the first thing, hearing the gospel. Secondly, and believed in him. You were sealed with the, whole, with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So how do you get into Christ? You must hear the gospel, the good news that God has come to ransom and save sinners by the death, life, death, and resurrection of his son. Whoever believes in Jesus will no longer perish but have everlasting life. You hear that, but you don't just hear it and go, that's cool. It's good for my neighbor or my friend. But you believe it and you trust it and in so doing, the Holy Spirit then will indwell you and will seal you. And that sealing of the Holy Spirit through faith is a guarantee that God will see you to the end. Amen. He's not going to allow anyone to pluck you out of his hand. He is not going to let anything separate you from his love. You are sealed. You are guaranteed. You are secure. God has put his stamp that you are his. And when you are stamped like that, you are secured. You are assured that God who has loved you, who is bearing fruit in you, this God is for you. So who can be against you? Now, I want to make sure that you understand what I'm saying here and make sure that we're not getting, getting wonky. I've known people, and I've been to funerals where somebody who said, yeah, so-and-so prayed the sinner's prayer when they were six. They died at 66. The 60 years between them praying the sinner's prayer at camp or in Sunday school to the time that they died was filled with all kinds of sin and debauchery and in fact, if you were to say, this person was a Christian, people would be like, what? No, he wasn't. That's weird. I've been there as the pastor leading the memorial. I've been there as an attendee. And I want to make sure that we're not fooling ourselves. Just because you make a momentary decision, perhaps influenced by great emotion, does not mean that you are united with Christ. Because Jesus said in John 15, 8, you will prove that you are a follower of Jesus by the fruit that you bear. So I want to make sure we're crystal clear. If you put your hope on a prayer, you put your hope on a decision card from Hume Lake Christian Camp, you're fooling yourselves. Your hope is only in Christ. That's it. His finished work and his promise to bear fruit in you and his promise to see you through the end. Now, let me ask and answer quickly this last question, the providence. Not providence, but provenance. What is the origin or source of this union with Christ that encompasses so much and is so important, so applicable? And we find it in verses three through six of Ephesians one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, 
according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. If you notice in verse 3 and 4, spiritual blessing comes to us in Christ, that is union with Christ, but this spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, God has chosen to give it to us before the foundation of the world. God does not give it to us because he sees that we are fine young men and women. He does not give it to us because we've performed to his liking. He does not give it to us because he thought, oh, now here's a chap I can use. It was before the world began, before the ages began, God in his divine will and pleasure decided that he would bless those who are in Christ. What that means is those who are blessed in Christ before the foundation of the world, God chose them to be blessed in Christ before the foundation of the world. It's not based on their choice. It's based on God's. I couldn't knock on the door of Daryl's house on a Saturday night and go, I want to eat ribs. Give me some lumpia. I can't do that. I am unwelcomed until I am first invited. And when they, choose, they chose to invite me in temporarily to be a part of their family and to eat their food, oh, was I blessed. And likewise, it is God who invites and God who calls and God who welcomes us to be a part of his family. In fact, what Paul says in 2 Timothy 1 is that God has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Now, when did God give this grace? He gave us this grace in Christ before the ages began. Before there was time, before there was a world, before there was you and I, God had already decided that he was going to give us, by his grace, salvation and sanctification. Now, you're probably asking yourself, why did Phil cannonball into a pool of controversy by bringing up predestination? And I want to answer it by simply saying this. I don't want to sit here and debate the logic of predestination, of its functionality. I want to ask ourselves the question, why in the world did Paul put it in here? Why would he include being chosen and predestined in the book of Ephesians. Why, why would he do that? Why would he include it in Titus 1? Why would he include it in 2 Timothy? Why would, he, why would Jesus talk about it in John everywhere? Why? And here's why, I think. It's because of verse 5 and 6 that in love, motivated by love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons according to his purpose the purpose of his will in other words the predestining act of God is motivated by love with the desire to adopt sinners into his family according to his good pleasure and all of that will result in God's praise which he lavished on us through grace in Christ What's amazing about this is God's love for us, brothers and sisters, is not everlasting in the sense that it has a definite beginning and then goes on forever. God's love for us is eternal, which means it has no beginning, nor does it have an end. And I don't know if you notice, but eternal love is greater than everlasting love. And it is God's everlasting and, more importantly, eternal love that motivated him to predestine to bless those who are in Christ with all spiritual blessings. Now, why would Paul talk about that in the book of Ephesians? And here's why I think. If you know anything about the book of uh, Ephesians or the church in Ephesus at this time, it was riddled with all kinds of dysfunction. There was lots of suffering and temptation and pain and sin. 
And they were often asking themselves the question, where is God? How do we do this? Has God abandoned us? This is hard to live this kind of life. They needed encouragement. They needed to be strengthened. So how is it that Paul is going to encourage and strengthen the church? He's going to give them what they need by telling them about God's eternal electing love. Here's what Brian Chappell, a pastor, here's what he writes. He says, Paul's using the doctrine of predestination not to separate believers, not to instill pride in our being chosen, not to vaunt our special knowledge of how God works, but he's using it simply to assure the hard-pressed believers that God has loved them and does love them apart from any merit of their own. In other words, he is using predestination as a means to bless the believer's hearts. It is not meant to be an endless argument. It is not an excuse not to evangelize. It is, however, our basis of comfort when we face the limitations of our actions, will, and choices. He says, we make the mistake at times of making predestination a source of pride that we know something other people don't or we're superior theologians than other people. But we should use predestination as the basis for our assurance in times in which we are beleaguered and we are wrestling with our sin and the world's trials among us. Predestination is the heavenly father's shout from all eternity that he loves us and is therefore a source of strength and renewal in the assurance that God is for you. And this is exactly what Paul's doing in the book of Ephesians. He's giving encouragement and strength and he's fortifying the faith of the Ephesians by telling them, you keep questioning whether or not God loves you and I'm here to tell you, he's loved you forever. And nothing can separate that love. Nothing can come between that love. Nothing will separate you from him. He has loved you eternally. He has chosen you for himself to be adopted into his family. He's welcomed you. He's invited you. He wants you. And the world is bashing us, brothers and sisters. You know it. We've come here. We've spent the last six days getting pummeled by one thing or another, struggling with sin. And if there's any encouragement you you need, it's to know this. God loves you, not just now, but he's loved you always and will continue to love you always. And this is a great source of encouragement. So as we look at this text that Denise read for us today, I want you to see the coalescing, the the bringing together of God's election and God's love and also the provenance. Consider your calling. When God called you and welcomed you into his family, he says not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose What is foolish in the world to shame the wise? God chose. What is weak in the world to shame the strong? God chose. What is low and despised in the world? Even things that are not to bring nothing, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. It's because of God. And this Jesus became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that none of us will be able to boast, I did this, I got in. No, 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 God got you in. And now that God has gotten you in, God will keep you in and God will see you to the end. God will not leave you, God will not forsake you, God will not abandon you, God's love is inseparably yours if you're united with Christ. And there is nothing, no threat, no power, nothing in all this world which will be able to separate you from him because of God's eternal, loving, predestining will. That is good. Chapel, let me finish his quote. It's as if God is saying to you through the doctrine of predestination, you always have been in my heart and no matter what happens in this world, I have chosen to love you before time began. Take heart, beloved. You are mine. 
Yes. And just in case you don't think that's good enough, here's what Jesus, he doubles down on it. He says, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me, which is his father. And what is the will of God the Father? It is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, God the Father, in his electing, predestining love, has given to the Son certain people. And those people who the Father has given to the Son, Jesus says, I will lose none of them, but I will see every one of them to the end. I will raise them up. For all who look upon the Son in faith, you are secured in Christ, you are kept in Christ, and you will be raised in Christ. So you're saved by God. You're saved from God. You're saved through God. You're saved to God. And you're saved for God. God all the way through. To him be the glory. So, Father, thank you for your electing love. Thank you that you are the origin of our union with Christ. That all the spiritual blessings which are ours in Christ come to us because you have first loved us before the ages began. And you have promised in Christ to preserve us, watch over us, protect us, to be present among us. You fortify us and strengthen us and encourage us with the words that nothing in this world can ever be able to stand between you and us because you are so radically for us. And this is not of our own doing. This is not because of our good works. We now know it's because of your great grace and mercy. And so, Father, I pray that those who are here today who are in Christ by faith, who believe, that you would strengthen them and encourage them God, that they would take hold of this beautiful truth that you love them from eternity. And for those who have not yet believed, I pray that they believe now. I pray that they will no longer be in Adam awaiting their death, but they would be found in Christ. God, I pray that you draw them and that they would believe. And in all these things, Lord, may you strengthen and encourage us as a church as we sing this last song about how everything we have and everything we are is owing to Christ in whose name we pray, amen.